this morning we're blessed to have a friend of mine, John Thompson, here this morning to preach to us and bring the word and encourage us in our worship in the word. Uh, John is a graduate of Master's Seminary. He's got his Master's Divinity there. He grew up in a pastor's house. His father, Rich, in addition to being a pastor, was uh, on staff at Master's University and one of the founders of the Biblical Counseling Program. And so John grew up being taught the word, being taught the word faithfully. And now John's, like a lot of us, learning to live the word faithfully. And so, John, thank you so much for blessing us this morning, and we look forward to hearing you tell us how to be thankful to our Father. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you today. And as you can tell, I'm on the other end of something. We've got four children, and the two healthiest are here today. (laughs) So so, um, we're going to be looking at the importance of saying thank you to God. Um, uh, Really from, I think, the best example of saying thank you to Jesus in the New Testament. We're going to be in Luke 17. Well, let me see if anybody out there, anybody remember Super Bowl 34? Super Bowl 34. The year 2000, it was the uh, Rams and the Titans. Did anybody watch that? I watched it. Anybody else watch it? For me, it was a very memorable Super Bowl. And uh, the reason why, not only because it was one of the closest finishes in Super Bowl history, basically the Titans had uh, 10 yards, Six seconds left, no more timeouts. They had one play left. They needed to make it to the end zone to have a chance of tying the game. And the pass was made to the five-yard line. The guy was tackled very quickly, an amazing tackle. But he tried to spin away and tried to reach for the goal line with the ball, uh, one of the memorable Super Bowl finishes. And the ball was placed inside the one-yard line at the end of the game. But the Rams quarterback, who is the Rams quarterback? Anybody know this? Kurt Warner. You look a little like Kurt Warner, by the way. But not this isn't the why reason why I chose this. So Kurt Warner, he was given the uh, the microphone after winning the Super Bowl. Kind of an unknown guy, and now he's won the Super Bowl. What were his first words? To 130 million watchers. Thank you, Jesus. That's what he said. Amazing. Takes a lot of courage to say that. And I think God rewarded the man. He's in the Hall of Fame. So we're going to look at another brother. Another brother who uh, thanked Jesus. And Luke 17, 11 through 19. So if you're not already there, please go to Luke 17, 11 through 19. We're going to see the importance of thanking our God. And it's something that's so overlooked, even in Christian life. We forget the importance of that. Easily forgotten, but it's a key way that we can glorify God in our lives. Luke 17 9 through 10, Jesus said this, referring to the master of a servant. 
Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? And what's the implied answer? No. No. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Luke then records for us our passage. And I've got an outline for this passage, Luke 17, 11 through 19. It is, I did the best I could, thanks, T-H-A-N-K-S, thanks, T-H-A-N-K-S, in this passage. We're going to see Jesus' traveling, 11 and 12. Help is pleaded for. You got to ask God for help. Sometimes he's waiting for you to ask him for help. Got to get to that point. An amazing miracle. That's the A. Verse 14. Now all alone. Verse 15. Kept for thanksgiving. Verse 16. And saved by grace. Verses 17 through 19. Verse 11. Traveling. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem. So Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Likely, the Samaritan woman at the well and the raising of Lazarus happened as part of this same trip. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. So this is his trip to die on the cross for our sin, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and wait for his next events. It happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst, the middle of Samaria and Galilee. The Samaritans, where we get Samaria, are mentioned by implication in the Old Testament and more directly in the New Testament. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians took part of the population of Samaria, the city of Samaria, away, put them in an area now that is part of Iraq, and replaced them with some people from their country. And those two groups of people, the Israelites who were still there, and the Assyrian people, had marriages, had children, and that's where he got the Samaritans from. Interesting how uh, one action 700 years earlier can bring about different things. The groups intermingled, formed this mixed race, who had devised their own worship, a hybrid of Judaism and paganism. They had their own temple of worship on Mount Gerizim. If you remember the the woman at the well, once Jesus said, uh, no, you're right, you've had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. Once he said that to her, it was like, better change the subject. And she tried to get him to debate where should you worship God? And she was talking about, our fathers say we should worship here, Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans were considered unclean by the Jews and hated by most Jews, so much that Jewish travelers from Galilee in the north going to Judah for sacrifices took a longer eastern route of the Jordan River to avoid going through Samaria. But... Our Lord was different. He didn't avoid them. 
how bad were the Samaritans looked upon? In John 8.48, the most offensive thing that the Jewish religious leaders could think of to call Jesus. They said, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? What came first? Samaritan. Wow. Verse 12, then as he entered a certain village, it's the Greek word kome, means a common sleeping place where laborers in the fields would return to a small hamlet, a small area. And Jesus was traveling through this small place, this certain village. There met him 10 men who were lepers. The Greek for 10, I'm just, I, I'm sorry, I, I like Greek and Hebrew, so I give you words. Greek for 10 is deca, where we get our decathlon. And the word for men, Andres, the meaning of the word in the New Testament is employed with reference to distinguishing a man from a woman. When you start messing around with what a language means, man or woman, it's an attack on the language. Why would you do that? It's very interesting because that's what we got going on right now in our country. Ten men who were lepers, leproi, leprous. A U.S. government study was made on leprosy. Interesting that they would do that. They state the first accurate description of leprosy was written by a physician called Aretas around 150 A.D. So this is 120 years after this man came before Christ. He described with great accuracy leprosy, which he called elephantos, elephant is our English word, referring probably to the thickness of skin that the disease caused and the severity of symptoms, not fatal, transmitted through respiratory route, with large nodules and ulcers of the fingers, knees, cheeks, and absorption of fingers and toes. Also a, a lichen growth on the chin all around, cheeks becoming red, eyes misty, nose with black protuberances, ulcers under the base of the ear, now you're starting to see, why would they call it elephant? Shriveled all over the body with rough wrinkles, black furrows on the skin. And then Arita said, there is a danger in living or associating with this as if it was a plague, for the infection is thereby communicated by respiration. If fully developed, it is fully established in the inward parts and has attacked the face, Arita says, the patient is in a hopeless condition. Hopeless condition. So once again, these men were in a hopeless state. And they had gotten to the point where they were willing to ask God for help. And sometimes God's waiting for us to do that. Sometimes he's waiting for us to get to that humble point where it's like, I'm willing to reach out for help. Leprosy in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew is zarat, and then the Greek lepra. 
the Greek could be referring to a wide range of uh, skin ailments, including Hansen's disease, which is the more modern leprosy. Uh, Leviticus 13 and 14 gives us God's law regarding how to handle leprosy. The priest was supposed to inspect the affliction. Leviticus 14 begins with God's plan for cleansing a leper. People could recover. And if you remember in the Old Testament, um, Miriam was given leprosy by God. And then uh, God took the leprosy away. God chose to heal Naaman, if you remember, captain of the Syrian army. Notice how Naaman, even though he had leprosy, he was still doing his job. He's still out there in society. So evidently the, uh, the Syrian laws were different. And he was good at what he did. The leper was to have clothes. This is according to Leviticus uh, 13. The leper was to have clothes torn. So you always got to walk around torn clothes. Head bare, so you can see it from a while away. Nothing on the head. And one of the side possibilities of side things that can happen to you with leprosy is baldness. Torn and head bare and cover the mustache and cry unclean, unclean. The leper was to dwell alone, dwelling outside the camp. And Israel had to be reminded in Numbers 5-2 to do this. So for whatever reason, God had already given them the law in Leviticus. And in Numbers, God said, you're not doing this. And they had to be reminded that lepers had to remain outside the camp. They had to stay outside the camp. One commentator says, when lepers were cured by Christ, they were neither lame nor deformed. That's kind of interesting as far as we know. They weren't brought on beds, as far as we know. The aim of the laws, leprosy laws, was to protect the people from disease and inculcate by vivid object how God desired purity, holiness, and cleanness among his people. So God's law has multiple dimensions of how it applies to our life. A leprosy in the New Testament. In Matthew 8.2, a leper came to Jesus worshiping him and Jesus did not get much worship as far as we can tell from the New Testament worshiping him and said Lord if you're willing you can make me clean and then Jesus touched him said I'm willing be clean and then instructed him to follow the law go to the priest give the sacrifice commanded Mark 1 and Luke 5 record the same healing of a leper. And Mark adds Jesus' emotional reaction. Jesus was moved with compassion. The humanness of our Lord. Matthew eleven five, Jesus told the disciples of John the Baptist that the fact that lepers were cleansed was a proof that he is the Messiah. He is Christ. Part of the proof. So these men, they stood afar off and they met him going into this nondescript little village. It makes me wonder if these men, it was either 
God just gave them the right perfect circumstances where, oh, there's Jesus, and they recognized him. Or it makes me wonder if they knew he was coming. Uh, it's possible maybe a, maybe a disciple came through first. But whatever the case was, 10 men were on cue outside this little place when Jesus walked in. 10 men were ready to go. Uh, verse 13, help pleaded for. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Ten men working together. Ten men had probably been working together to survive the difficulties of what needs to be done in life outside of society and to bear each other's burdens with loss of family and relationships. I mean, imagine how hard it would be to be outside society and not have your family on top of that. No support. And that was these men. So they lifted up their voices together and they chose to use these words. Jesus, epistata is the Greek word, master or commander, means master commander. Epistata only appears six other times in the New Testament. Twice in one verse, Luke eight twenty four. Master, master, we are perishing. Who said that? The disciples said it twice, panic. And these guys were on the Sea of Galilee. They lived on the Sea of Galilee, so they knew when it was bad. And it was bad at that time. These guys weren't overreacting. Master, master, we are perishing. But of the six other times that epistata, master commander, is used in the New Testament, every time it comes out of the mouth of a disciple of Christ. Interesting. That's another thing that makes me wonder if maybe a disciple went through and said, okay, you're going to be right here and um, use these words. Or maybe... They actually were, in some way, being discipled by Christ through somebody else, another disciple. Whatever the case is, they used the word master commander, epistata. And they said, have mercy on us. How many times do you think Jesus heard that in his three-year ministry? Many, many times. Verse 14, amazing miracle. So when he saw them... He said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. Nothing else. Just go to the priests. There's only one reason why they wouldn't want to go to the priests. They would be cleansed going to the priest. And to go to the priest for them is walking by faith. Walking by faith. God does that with us today. Walk by faith and not by sight. He says, I want you to do this. And we don't understand all that goes along with it, but we do know who told us to live a certain way, do a certain thing. And he knows all the consequences. And he'll take care of those. They're all in his hands. There's only one reason why they would go, and that's to walk by faith. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. 
the word here cleansed could mean physically and ceremonially. Um, this allowed them to be back in society with their families. But they had to go to the priest first. Keep that in mind. Had to go to the priest first and determined to be clean, ceremonially clean. That had to happen first. And for nine of these men, the most important thing at that moment was get to the priest. And I can get back to my life and my family. For one of them, he saw a different priority. Verse 15 And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, this man knew that his life had been given him back and he knew the right thing to do next. And he would do the right thing even if he had to be alone in doing the right thing. So he did the right thing alone. People that came to my mind of doing the right thing alone. Old Testament, New Testament, just a few. Joseph was alone and did the right thing. Elijah was alone, did the right thing. Jeremiah, alone. Ezekiel, once his wife died, once the Lord took his wife from him, he was alone. Daniel. Think about the life of Daniel and what he went through. The dangers that were constantly surrounding him. And he was alone. Esther, once she walked into that royal residence area, she was alone. And Paul, many times alone. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. The Greek word for loud, megalos, mega, where we get our mega, mega vitamin. How do you give glory to God? Can somebody give me some, can we interact here? Is it okay if we interact? Okay. So how do you give glory to God? What are some ways you can give glory to God? Any ideas? There are many ways. Prioritizing his word in your life, setting aside a time in your day for him and his word. He cared about us enough to give us his word, to give us his word in our language. There are still people that don't have it in their language. And and to prioritize what he says in his word in our lives. That's one, respecting him and his things, his church, his people. Fearing him. And a big way to give him glory is thank him. And he's glorified when you thank him for things that you don't even understand. How it's going to work together for good. That's walking by faith, not by sight. Sight means you understand it all. Got it all figured out. Sight is, you know, I don't understand it all. But I still trust you with what you've allowed. Verse 16. 
and fell down on his face at his feet. This is very unique too. This man fell on his face on the ground before Jesus. Not very often did this happen. What do we have in the New Testament for that? It's a position of worship. Matthew 26, 39, who fell on their face? Trick question. Matthew 26, the end of Matthew, end of 26, 39. Jesus did that. Luke 5, 12, another leprous man did that. Luke 24, 5, women at the tomb. 1 Corinthians 14, 25, an unbelieving person is supposed to see what's going on in the church and that results in their turning to the Lord, falling on their face, giving him glory. And then two different events in Revelation. So really what you got here is in the New Testament, only two men who were lepers fell on their face on the ground before Jesus that we know of, just two, and they were lepers. Fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. In the New Testament, here's another quiz. In the New Testament, who gave thanks to God the most? Well, you think, you think it's Jesus, but actually it is. New Testament, throughout the whole New Testament. Paul, somebody said Paul. Paul, I thank God. Paul, by far, Paul, thank God the most. Which is amazing because look at the list of all that Paul went through in his life. Look at that list. And yet he recognized the priority of thanking God. Romans one twenty one states that a key characteristic of an unbeliever is not giving thanks to God. So, if our life is characterized by not giving thanks to God, we're modeling the unbeliever better than the believer. That's Romans one twenty one. But the uh, incredible thing, and this is the this is the main reason why in seminary I chose this passage to go through, is that there's only one person in all of the New Testament during Christ's earthly ministry that said, thank you, Jesus, that we have record of in the New Testament. It's this man. One person. How many people did Jesus help and change their life dramatically? And yet we've only got record of one person in the New Testament that said, thank you, Jesus, during his earthly ministry. This man. First Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. People are always saying, I want to know God's will for my life. Here's one you know for sure. God says, in everything give thanks. In the Greek, it means in everything give thanks. You can't get away with it if you're reading the actual language. 
It means God wants us to be thankful to Him even for the things that we don't understand. And that's for me. I'm, I'm often to the point of saying, Lord, I don't know how this works together for good, but I trust you. You will work it together for good in your time and in your way. I trust you. And by faith, I thank you for that. And then Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be worried. But in everything, notice there said everything again, everything. By prayer and supplication, what's the next phrase? With thanksgiving. That's the next phrase. And you'd be surprised how many times I and maybe even other people will run through that verse in my mind and skip the with thanksgiving part. So brief, but it's so key. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So God wants to hear about everything from you. And the peace of God, the result is God's peace in your life, which surpasses all understanding, all understanding, all the mind can figure out. God's peace goes beyond that will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And we, and we read about the background of the Samaritans. Verse 17, saved by grace. So Jesus answered and said, were not ten cleansed? Did he know the answer to that? Yes. But where are the nine? Did he know the answer to that? Yes. In the garden, he said to Adam, where are you? Did he know the answer to that? Yes. Were there not found any who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Okay, the Greek word that Jesus used, foreigner, is allogenes. If we talk about the closest thing that we have today from the Temple Mount, this was the closest, said David Mevrovac, senior curator of Hellenistic, Roman, and Byzantine archaeology. Two millennia ago, there was a block, a big stone block, that served as one of several do not enter signs in the second temple in Jerusalem, delineating a section of the 37-acre complex off limits for the ritually impure Jews and non-Jews alike. Written in Greek, the block said, they warned, no foreigner allogenes, same word, may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he be put blame for the death with which will ensue. And keep in mind that this Allogenes, Jesus called him Allogenes, and many of those people who heard him speak knew that the word Allogenes was on that warning sign. At that time, outside the temple, 
can't get in if you're ritually impure. Keep in mind that this man at this point was actually ritually impure. Had not been to the priest yet. He'd been cleansed, but he still had to go to the priest. And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Pistis, uh, faith has cured you. Also can be translated as made you whole. Complete healing. In the same Greek word, the same Greek word can often be translated save. Can be translated, your faith has saved you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, God's grace, you are saved through faith. That's your responsibility. But not as a result of works. For by grace, you are saved through faith. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. John Wesley's father, Samuel, was a dedicated pastor. But there were those who, in his parish who did not like him. On February 9, 1709, a fire broke out in the rectory at Epworth, possibly set by an enemy. Young John, young John, not yet six years old, our child over there is five, was stranded on an upper floor of the building. Two neighbors rescued the lad seconds before the roof crashed in. One neighbor stood on the other's shoulders and pulled young John through the window. Samuel Wesley's response, Come, neighbors, let us kneel down. Let us give thanks to God. He has given me all my eight children. Let the house go. I'm rich enough. In later years, John Wesley would write in his diary on that same day, February 9th, thanks to God for his mercy and saving his life. Samuel Wesley, John Wesley's father, labored for 40 years at Epworth, saw very little fruit, but consider what his family accomplished. Two of his sons, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and his wife was Susanna, who also had a ministry in later years with books. Thanking the Lord is another way of accepting what he's provided and given us. Sometimes I have to say, thank you by faith, Lord, because I don't understand how you're going to work it, to get, work it together for good. But that's walking by faith. Walking by faith. Psalm 50, 14 and 15 says, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God gets glory when we give to him thanksgiving. As an offering. As the world looks at us. God's spiritual children. And sees somebody that. Thankful to God. In a thankful spirit. That's very strange to them. Because as Romans 1 explains to us. One of the key characteristics of the unbelieving world is. No thanks. Not giving thanks. 
not a characteristic of my life. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows. Call upon me and I will answer you. And you shall glorify me. You'll give me glory. 